Someone once said that when we are in our lives pursuing God, that sometimes we find ourselves surrounded by pig slop and whale guts. And of course, what they're referring to is uh, the younger son that Jesus tells a story about um, in the prodigal son's story who uh, desperately wants his inheritance earlier and he actually wants to live by his own plans. And as a result of that, um, instead of following his father's plans, he finds himself, himself in the stalls of a pig. And the only thing to eat is the slop that's around him. And of course, what they mean by whale guts is the story of Jonah, who had clearly painted, God painted clearly his plan in front of him. And instead of pursuing God's plan in that, Jonah decides that he's going to do his own thing and get swallowed by a whale. And I think sometimes we find ourselves in that same position. The Hebrews were no different in this part of our story. The Hebrews found themselves in those times. They were forced to leave their city, but more importantly, they were forced to abandon the foundation of their temple by foreign countries like Assyria and Babylon. The Hebrew people found themselves in the stall of the prodigal son in this moment. They abandoned God's plans of prosperity and a future, and now they are impoverished and they are enslaved. And it brings up a very interesting question, and really this whole part of the story in chapter 19 actually answers a very important question. What does God do when his people make his first things their second things? How does God respond to us when we don't place our priorities with his priorities? What does God do when his people go off track? We've all had that experience. See, for the Babylon, or for the, the, the Hebrews, they were in Babylonian exile. In chapter 19, the Jewish people have been sent into this exile for nearly three generations at this point. Babylon has now been, at this point in the story, been sacked by the Persian Empire. And there's a guy who leads that empire. His name is King Cyrus. And we're going to read about him here in just a minute um, in Ezra chapter 1. But throughout these three generations, the Israelites, the, the people of God, still found some sense of identity because God continued to raise individuals who were found to be righteous. And they kept showing up in this part of the story. You see, uh, uh, the Hebrew nation really isn't that too dissimilar from our own nation, from our own experience. There was political division amongst them. Israel had their nation to the north, and Judah had their nation to the south, and both claimed to be the people of truth, the people of God. But amongst this entire nation, there was resistance to God's word. There was resistance in his favor, um, in, in receiving his favor, so that they could favor those who patronized the, match, the masses. They also kind of traded in their morality and they traded in their values for things like pleasure and selfishness. And spiritual leadership was very, very sparse at this time. And so God allows enemy nations to invade and move the people into Babylonian exile. Now, what it means to be in exile is simply this. It means that you're being forced to live where you don't belong. And because of that, this was a very significant event in the life of the Hebrews. But more importantly, it's a very significant event in anybody who claims a faith in God in their lives. And so because of that, we can say that we are sort of in exile today. And what I mean by that is that we sort of have a sense that we were designed to be in a different place. Um, I, I think all of us have had an experience where we go, okay, this world is not lining up with what I know to be true. And so because of that, we can say we're in exile 
Paul says it this way. He says that our citizenship isn't here. Our citizenship lies in heaven. He says it another way. He says we're strangers in a strange land. He even calls us aliens uh, because of the faith that we profess. I remember um, a few years ago when my mom's health began to decline, there were a number of uh, procedures that we had to do, and it required me to be away from my house, away from my family for some time, for a couple of weeks. And by the time we started getting things situated, the entire kind of mood I had was, I just want to be back home. And at this point in our story, the Hebrew nation for three generations has been sent 900 miles away, and they're in strangers in a strange land, and they just want to be home. You ever feel like that? I just want to be home. Well, God responds to this. And in Ezra chapter 1, we read these verses that are actually a decree that God uses through uh, King Cyrus. Starting in verse 2 in Ezra, 1, in Ezra chapter 1, we read this. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you, whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him. And let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. And let each survivor in whatever place he sojourns be assisted by the men of his place with silver and gold, with goods and with beasts, beside free will offerings for the house of God that is in Jerusalem. This is a massive turn of events. Not only does God use a foreign king to send his people home, he uses the foreign king to also resource them as they go and they rebuild what is most precious to them. And it demands this question, why would God do this? Why does God care so much about this temple? And think about it. God does not need a house to live in. And more than that, he does not need people to build that house. If he wants a house to live in, he can just make one. He can just speak it into existence. So why does God care so much about this? Well, I think it's because God's not the one in need here. He knows that the temple is not necessarily for him, but it's for the people. Max Licato points it out this way of the temple. He said, the temple is God's powerful passion of proximity. That this is the way he's going to declare that he wants to be among his people. Now, you may not have considered this before. You, you may not have considered that God's temple communicates several different things to us today, but even to the people of the Old Testament. It communicates God's desire to dwell amongst his people. And we need to know this. This is the prevalent message that is from the book of Genesis all the way through the end of Revelation. That God is, is demonstrating his desire to be and dwell among the people of God. Where was the temple located? Well, many temples were located in the hills because those were the high places. Some people even claim that temples were located in the stars. And these are all uh, part of the mystic religions and, and, and the things that they would proffer. Some people put um, the temples outside cities, outside the market areas. This is where the pagan gods and their temples would exist. But this isn't where God's temple resided. God put his temple smack dab in the busiest part of the largest city of the Hebrew nation. He put his temple exactly where the people are. The temple also communicates our, our human problem, our human condition. 
You see, not everyone could enter every space of the temple. And the reason for that is because we carry along with us a sinful nature. And and God's presence can't be connected to our sinful nature. And so the temple is a reminder of that, that we can't enter certain places because of the decisions that we have chosen. Sin creates a separation of God and mankind, and that's what the temple reminded us. And so the temple also communicates God's solution to this. The temple is where the priest would go and make a blood sacrifice. And people learn not just about law and sin, but about atonement. The image of the temple prepares the people of God for the coming Messiah. So God sends his people back. In 538 B.C., God uses a Persian king to send 50,000 Jews 900 miles back to Jerusalem with supplies to build their temple. And you know what they did? They started building They started building. Right away, they got to work. For them, in this moment, God's first things became their first things. And we read an update on this in Ezra chapter 3. And we read this starting in verse 1. When the seventh month came and the children of Israel were in the towns, the people gathered as one man to Jerusalem. They were united in their efforts. Then Then arose Jeshua, the son of Josadak, with his fellow priests, and Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, with his kinsmen, and they built the altar of the God of of Israel to offer burnt offerings on it, as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. They set the altar in its place, for fear was on them because of the peoples of the lands, and they offered burnt offerings on it to the Lord, burnt offerings morning and evening. They got to work. But while they were working, there were outside enemies who who would come in, and they would taunt them. But they stayed on task. There was fear that rose within them because they saw the enemy pursuing them. But they stayed focused because God's priority became their priority. And like many of us, that started to fade after time. They begin to lose focus after they got such a great start. Over time, they begin to pay less and less attention to the house of God and more and more attention to their own affairs, their own homes, their own projects, their own events. Why did they do this? Well, Scripture doesn't really tell us specific reasons. I mean, it's possible maybe that they just kind of got tired of moving bricks. They got tired of stacking stones. Maybe they became really weary of the people and the nations that were surrounding them and taunting them and making fun of them and teasing them as they rebuilt. It's possible that they were even intimidated by those nations, by the threats from their enemies. But probably... Probably they just got distracted with their own stuff. Has this happened to you? Have you ever been just distracted with your own thing that it moved you off mission? Have you committed yourself to God but over time just made certain compromises? January 1st, we start coming back to church, and then we get the first snow, or we get the first issue, or we get the first thing that gets in the way of that commitment we make. Or have you ever made this promise, I'll never let, and then you just insert whatever sin that you've been struggling with or sin that's been going on, I'll never let that be in my house. And then it just slowly inches its way back in. Have you ever said, this will be the time I commit to such and such ministry, but then you just allow yourself to become busy. And instead of canceling the things that have been making you too busy to participate in the ministry that God put in front of you, the ministry that God has impassioned you with, you just said, you know what, I'm going to stop that so I can attain, uh, attend to this. 
See, the Jews, they had every intention to come back to this temple project. I'm going to work on my house just for the next year, and then I'll be back. Well, you see, I need to devote myself to a job now because uh, we're starting to kind of get back together here, and I need to make some money. I need to earn a living. And so five years pass. Well, now I got kids, and they got stuff, and we got to pay attention to that. And pretty soon, we know that 10 years pass. Then all of a sudden, in our scriptures, we read that 16 years have passed, and the temple foundations are just laying there. 16 years. This is enough time for a lot of misplaced priorities. 16 years is enough time for the grass to grow over the footings. 16 years is enough time for the weeds to take over. 16 years is enough time for the other nations who would come out and taunt them while they were rebuilding to look at them and think, man, they don't take their God very seriously, do they? 16 years is enough time for their kids to see this rusting foundation and say, I guess our parents really don't think much about God. Has this happened to you? Are you like the Ephesians that Jesus spoke about in Revelation chapter 2 when he says, But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent, and do the works you did at first. See, the Hebrews had forgotten their first love, like so many of us have. C.S. Lewis says this, If you put first things first, you get second things thrown in. But if you put second things first... You lose both, both first and second things. You see, for the Jews, the second things became the first things. And while making sure their houses flourished, the, temples, the temple faded away along with their resolve to do the mission of God. So what did God do? Well, God does what he commonly does, and he sent a couple people to come and speak truth into this situation. He sends a couple guys, and one of those guys, his name is Haggai. And we're actually going to read from Haggai. Um, we're going to read from Haggai chapter 1. It's pretty lengthy here, so if you follow along with me, and as I'm reading that, I ought to give you plenty of time to look at your concordance to find out where that is so that you can, so that you can follow along with that and catch up. But we're going to be in Haggai chapter 1, and this is Haggai's response um, to what they have to say, starting in verse 4. He says this, Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while, while this house lies in ruins? This house, he means by the temple. Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up the hills and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it, and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. You look for much, and behold, it came, to, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house that lies in ruins, while each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore, the heavens above you have withheld the dew, and the earth has withheld its produce. And I have called for a drought on the land and the hills on the grain, the new wine, the oil, on what the ground brings forth, on man and beast, and on all their labors. That's a powerful passage. That's a powerful passage. Do you ever wonder what God does when we treat his mission like it's an option? 
Haggai spells it out for us. Do you ever wonder what happens when we make second things out of God? Well, Haggai just told us. Do you ever wonder when we misplace our priorities and they're not lined up with God? It's right there. How does God get our attention when we don't give it to him? Well, he lets us sit in the pig stalls and he lets us stare at the whale guts. He permits droughts and downturns and difficulties and life becomes marked by futility. We plant but don't have much to harvest. We eat but we're never satisfied. We earn a living only to see it disappear and sometimes for some of us it brings us to a place where we go, God, what are you doing? Where are you right now, Lord? And I think God hears that and he says, ah, there you are. There you are. I do want to give you a warning with this. I don't think that we need to take every little mishap or rough situation and, and, and declare some kind of theological crisis out of this. They're not all a reflection of God's anger. I mean, there's sometimes when the lights on Rock Road are just red. That's it. And God's not smiting us because of that. That's just how it goes. So I don't want us to do that. I don't want us to see every bad thing in our life saying God's punishing me for something. But what we are talking about here is that seasons of life, there are seasons of life that God uses our futility to gain our attention. Sometimes God allows times of difficulties to come to us so that we can do what Haggai just said, consider our ways. See, the people of Israel had to be the people of God before they experienced true freedom from exile. And I think this rings true for us as well. So we are called to build a temple. But we're not called to build a temple like the Israelites were called to build. This building we're in now isn't really a temple. It, it's, it's just a building. Acts 7 reminds us that God does not live in houses made by men. And in 1 Corinthians, Paul reminds us that the people, we are the temple. See, God does not need a building, or he really doesn't desire one, to be honest. We never read that. But to be the people of God does not require a temple, but it means that we do lead temple lifestyles. Because God still wants his people to be about his business. He wants to be our first thing. He made himself available for that to happen. And while we may feel like we are in exile, God still calls us to build my temple. So what does that look like? Well, here's a few traits. There are a bunch of them that I came up with, but because you guys will get mad at me for keeping you here past lunch, we're only going to look at a few of them. All right? So one of those traits about becoming about the lifestyle or becoming about the temple lifestyle, one of those is this, that we practice being in the presence of God. Do you spend time in God's presence? Like, Do you spend a, a significant portion of your day, your week, just reflecting on God being there? Or do you find your life too busy for God? Do you find that time with Jesus is only for church days or special holidays or, or special times? Do you read your Bible on your own? 
I remember, I, I, I can't remember if it was my brother or my dad, but one of them got the first, they were the first person I knew that got an HD TV when it first came out, a high definition TV. And I remember how excited they were when they put it up and they said, oh man, this is gonna be awesome. Um, of course, it was still big giant, kind of big box type thing, but we were gonna have the clearest picture ever and all these things and we turned it on and it was even fuzzier than our previous one. And because it was right when they started coming out, someone said, well, yeah, did you get a converter box for that? Because we needed a box to take the signal, that the, I think it was an analog signal, to, transfer, to move that into a high-definition signal. You see, we're not building a temple like they did in the Old Testament because that was an analog signal. We have been given the converter box so that we can see this and experience God in high-definition. The reason we don't worship in a temple like they did in the Old Testament ever since the day of Pentecost is because we have something better. Jesus lived a holy life. He died on, died on the cross as a sinner's death and was buried and came back to life on the third day. And he appeared to small groups and large groups for several weeks. He ascended into heaven in the sight of many witnesses and said, You wait in Jerusalem and I will send a comforter, a helper, the Holy Spirit. And when Peter preached that first, uh, that first sermon in Acts chapter 2, we are told that the people were pierced to the heart and said, what do we do now? And in response to that, Peter said, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. See, for the believer, God takes up residency in our hearts. He is with us. Do you spend time in God's presence? Dwight L. Moody once asked, uh, was once asked by a man in his church. He said, why are you always saying, Lord, fill me up? And Moody responded, because I leak. Well, we all do from time to time. And that's why practicing God's presence is warranted. Well, another trait is that we practice prayer. In Ezra and Haggai's day, a person would communicate to the high priest. The high priest would communicate to God as their mediator. They would enter in a place called the Holy of Holies one day out of the year, and priests would enter with a rope around, tied around him because uh, he might not make it out, and they couldn't enter in there. And so they would have to pull him out if he were to die in the Holy of Holies. See, access to God was only through the high priest. Separation of the Holy of Holies was demonstrated by a very thick curtain, and the people were not allowed in. But when Jesus died, very unusual things began to happen. The gospel accounts tell us that at that moment, uh, that when Jesus breathed his final breath, the top of the temple began to tear from top to bottom. And the message was very clear to all who witnessed this. You don't have the curtain any longer. You have direct access to Almighty God. We're told in Hebrews chapter 10, Therefore, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, open for us through the curtain, that is his body, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with sincere hearts and with the full assurance that faith brings. We have access to the Father. Prayer is the greatest work that arises from salvation. Nothing identifies us more as the people of God than when we pray to him. Be people of prayer. Also, we ought to be practicing gathering together. Fellowship is an identifying mark of uh, temple lifestyles. 
Now, I know there are many people that are listening in online right now for various reasons, but even as you listen in online, you need to know that you have to have connection to those that we worship with, that the Christian lifestyle is not designed to be lived alone. 1 Corinthians 3.16, Paul tells us this, don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells within your midst? See, the church is his home. Capital C Church is his home. Not so much the building, but it's the people as we gather. There are powerful things that happen when we're together. The, the church is the body of believers who have accepted not only Jesus' salvation, but have positioned him as Lord of our lives. The temple courts are usually, uh, in the Old Testament, were usually what the people thought of when they heard the word temple. It was an outer court where people could gather, but inside is where the sacrifice would take place. That's why the rebuilding was, of the temple was so important for the Hebrew nation at this part of our story. It's where sacrifices could happen. With no temple, there was no atonement. With no atonement, there could be no forgiveness. But just as the Jewish people needed the temple to sacrifice, so do we need Jesus because he became the perfect sacrifice, the once and for all sacrifice. You see, in this story, the Jews got excited about the journey home. They were ready to put Babylon behind them and return to Jerusalem and go to work on the temple. But they got distracted along the way. But God will get their attention, and perhaps he's getting your attention today. Perhaps he's, he's reminding you of your distractions. Are you distracted? Man, we've all been there. We know what it's like. The world around us is noisy, busy, and intimidating. But we practice God's presence. We pursue godly prayer, and we gather together to confront that distraction. And when the message was sent to the people that they could go home and rebuild their temples, their response was recorded in Ezra chapter 5, verse 11. We are the servants of God, they said. We are the servants of God of heaven and of earth, and we are rebuilding the temple that was built many years ago. And so today the message is the same. Come back. Rebuild his temple what will be your response? Will you believe who Jesus Christ is and what he's done for you? Will you repent of your old way, your distracted way, and come back to him? Will you trust and confess in him through your words and through your life? Maybe it's time for you to respond in baptism by showing him and yourself that you believe and are ready to obey him. And if these are decisions that you have to make, we're going to sing a song. And as we sing the song, there will be some folks that are at uh, our decision points, and they would gladly lead you in those decisions. So would you stand as we begin singing right now? If you got a decision to make, make your way to that decision point.